This is part three of our four-part series. Level two, after kingdom habitation, is to understand the language of God. We must learn to speak God's language to convey the true nature of the kingdom. The words of God can move heaven and earth. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. I'm Robert Winfield, and this is Chapter House. To begin to understand why what we say matters, we need to start with Proverbs, written by the wisest man in the world ever. The following scriptures are in order and have a sobering effect. What you see rolling in front of you is just a small sample of how many scriptures deal with your mouth and what you're speaking. We're just going to run them by the screen for you to get an idea of the volume and scope of these wisdom nuggets. There's just too many to list and repeat. But just do a study starting in Proverbs chapter 4 and go through chapter 16. This is a place to start and it goes all the way into James, Job, Matthew as well. Given all that the scriptures say about our words, it wouldn't be a stretch really to say that we'll be held accountable for every idle, empty, void, useless, improper, worthless, criticizing or irreverent word that we speak to ourselves, to others, or to God. And in that, what we speak or don't speak can mean the difference between life and death. Also, if we don't learn to bridle or restrain or curb our speech, our religion is in vain. As long as you say things that don't agree with what is written in the Bible, your faith isn't working. The Bible speaks of how God hates a froward mouth. The word froward is an archaic word, but means moving or facing away from someone, or to be contrary, in this case, contrary to God's word. Contrary means to be clashing, conflicting, or blowing in the opposite direction. What would be contrary to God's word? Well, it would be like God says, I am the God that heals thee. To be froward would be to say, God doesn't heal today. Or God saying, I will stretch out my hand against the wrath of your enemies, and my right hand will save you. To be froward would be to say, God can't protect you from everything. Um, God would say, give and it will be given unto you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. To be forward would be to say, you can give, but don't expect anything in return from God. So let's take a look at this, this particular one, this last one, just for a moment to explain how religion sees it. Religion says, if you give, you can't expect anything back. Now, besides that being forward to the scripture, we can illustrate how that belief is pure wing nuttery. That belief is like saying, I'll give you a dollar for every push-up you give me, but if you will only do the push-ups to get the dollars I said I would give you, you're not getting anything. That is not what the scripture says. It says if you give, 
you'll get even more piled up on you. Reason? Then you can give even more and more and more, period. To take anything God says and deem it as non-effective, passed away, or doesn't mean what it says by omission or commission is being forward. We're to be agreeing with God, not trying to rationalize how what He says is no longer valid or never was valid. Agreeing with God is calling things that aren't as though they are. Scripture calls that a confession. The word confession is not like going into a little box and hiding your face from a priest, telling him all your sin-like secrets. The word confession is associated with the Greek word homologios. Homologios, confession or profession, Greek 3671, homologia or the same as homologio, homo meaning the same and logia meaning the word to say the same thing or word as another, to agree with assent, to say the same thing or word as God. Jesus is called the high priest of our confession. When you agree with the word of God, Jesus, our high priest, blesses or empowers those words through our spirits. Then things start changing. Words change things. The word translated word and the word translated things, in some cases, have the same Hebrew root word and are used interchangeably. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings, and these things shouldn't be happening. Solomon, James, and Matthew all say the same thing, and I have only cited some of these many scriptures on the subject. And let's not forget the grandfather of controversial verses in Mark. Mark 11:23. For truly I say to you that whoever says to this mountain be removed and be cast into the sea and not doubt in his spirit but will believe that the things he says will come to pass he shall have whatever he says. Many people go off the hook when someone teaches the literal meaning of this verse as if they wish it would just go away. A rational mind would ask, is Jesus saying that if we believe what we speak, things will change? Is our mental and physical condition the effect of what we've said about ourselves over and over and over again? Jesus did say and read, if you don't doubt in your heart but believe those things that you say will come to pass, you will have what you say doesn't say the things you believe must be good. It just says things you would say. We could be believing in bad things. If our words are like a rudder to a boat or a bit to a horse, then we need to consider what's coming out of our mouth and what direction those words are heading. Let's look at some kingdom law. We've talked a little about laws of the kingdom before, but there are three separate occasions where Jesus said the same thing in different ways. We can say with confidence that if Jesus said it even once, it would be important. Whole doctrines and denominations have been built on less information. I mean, the entire Catholic Church is founded on one scripture. So saying this multiple times 
should escalate the importance. And if we should be believing what Jesus said, here are those examples. Matthew 17, 18 through 20, after casting out a demon. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it, your faith, will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Luke 17, four through six, in ministering forgiveness. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it, your faith, would obey you. And then again, the last one in Mark 11, 21, 23, walking past a fig tree, he says, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart or have faith, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. These scriptures haven't been taken out of context, nor are they speaking about the same event. They take place in three different places with different people in three different books of the Bible. One episode takes place after casting out a demon, another in ministering forgiveness, and one other walking past a fig tree. We see that it's plain. Jesus is saying, if we have faith, and if we say with our mouth, we will have what we say. We will have whatever we say. But we've trained our spirits to not believe anything we say. We think we can say whatever we want and nothing is affected. We say, I'm dying to go, or my feet are killing me, or when it's cold outside, we kiddingly say, it sure is warm out. All kinds of stuff that's loose talk. We aren't aware that we're training our spirit to not believe the words of our mouth. And it's really no wonder when we say things we don't believe will come to pass. Like that pie is to die for. And in many ways, it's a good thing. Who wants to die for a pie? The bottom line is this, God's not going to turn up the power in your life until you get a hold of that tongue. As scripture says, we look through a glass darkly. We often find the nature and attributes of God mysterious, and sometimes we find them aggravating. And to some, nothing can be more aggravating than a Christian who follows God's word as if he meant what he said. Once we start down the road of qualifying and censoring God's words, we fall into the same realm as the 10 spies who came back from the promised land with a report that was contrary to what God said. The leadership decided to go check out the land to see if it was something they felt comfortable with. God didn't say go scout out the land. He said to go in and take it. Deuteronomy 1, 21 through 27, 32, 33, and 37. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And 
every one of you came to me, Moses, and said, let's send men in before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities unto which we shall come. The plan pleased me well, so I took 12 of, the, of your men, one man from each tribe. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. The Lord was also angry with me, Moses, for your sake, saying, even you shall not go into the promised land. So we can see the outcome of something that is the product of the mind versus the word spoken by the Lord. We see how the mind will override the spoken word. Never underestimate the power of God and never underestimate the power of a human to ignore him. Justified as the spies' fears may have seemed, the end result was that the people were so discouraged they couldn't even imagine possessing the land and spent 40 years going around in a big circle in the desert. This was based on their decision not to agree or confess God's word and instead grumble and call forth evil things till they came to pass. They wouldn't stop saying the very thing they didn't want till God considered it rebellion against him personally and the very thing that they feared came upon them. Like Job saying, the very thing I feared the most has come upon me. Here are some of the words they said over and over and over again, and I didn't list all of them. Each one of these lines is from a different scripture from Exodus to Numbers. Uh, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? They said because he hated them, he, was brought, he had brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Would that we have had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Then the Lord said, really after all of this, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be destroyed and they will die. In other words, they're gonna have what they said. Now the tribes had whittled down that whole mission to the size of their soul. The scriptures called Jesus the Word. The Word spoke words to demons, storms, a basket of bread and a few fish. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Little girl, arise. Your servant is healed. Depart, you foul evil spirit. Pick up your bedroll and walk. 
He was calling things that weren't as though they were. He didn't wave a wand or think things when they happened. We have a tendency to call things that are as though they are. The word is more powerful than a two-edged sword or what God says about the situation. In the word sword, you can see the word word, S-W-O-R-D. In the court of life and death, Jesus is the high priest of our confession. God said that he's always watching over his word to perform it. His word will not return void. Like the snow and the rain replenishes the earth, his words accomplish what they were sent for. Someone who has just received a devastating diagnosis, understandably might say, I have cancer. But God says in Peter that by Jesus' stripes, we were healed. Or I am the God that heals thee. We might say we're stupid and not very smart. But James says, if any man wants wisdom, let him ask God and not doubt he will receive it. A person who has a um, who's a drug addict or a prostitute might think they can't get past who they are or were. But Paul said, forget the past. You're a new creature in Christ. Jesus came to make all things new again. When facing a financial problem, we might say that we were poor or never have any money. But Jesus became poor that we might be rich. Now, some people will say that this scripture means spiritually rich. You've heard me talk about people telling you scripture means something other than what it says. Now, I don't want you to get tripped up over this because of tradition, but let's pause for a teaching moment in originalism. For this verse of scripture, we need to look at the Strong's Greek Dictionary to tell us what the word rich is. Now, I have no agenda here, but to show you what words are that are translated from Greek to English. And you have to decide for yourself what you think the truth is. So, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, there is the word in question being rich. There are two Greek words dealing with rich as spiritual riches. Plusios, Greek 4145, meaning abounding or rich in Christian virtues and eternal possessions, and plutizo, Greek word 414s, meaning spiritual riches. In 2 Corinthians 8.9, neither of these Greek words are used to describe rich, but a third Greek word, plotio, Greek word 4147 is used in 2 Corinthians 8.9 to describe rich. This word means to be rich, to have abundance of outward possessions, affluent in resources, or metaphorically, to be richly supplied. So metaphorically and properly, it means worldly riches, not spiritual riches. Now, if it was spiritual riches, the Greek word rich would reflect that since there are two acceptable Greek words that mean just that. So you decide if it makes sense to say spiritual riches in this light. Now, I broke all that down to show you how words matter. They matter in the text, and they matter when you hear them, and they matter when you say them. The abundance of what is in your spirit will eventually come out of your mouth as words, and sometimes at a most inopportune time. 
Your spirit will eventually betray you if you fill it with anything but God's Word. This is the crux of why knowing what God's words are is so important. So we can say and believe them to bring change in this earth and in our lives and in the lives of others. You can't agree with words you don't know anything about. Words matter. What you say and believe, good or bad, comes to pass in your life. Life and death is not in the power of the devil. It's in the power of your tongue. Your confession needs to be the word of God, not the words of men. Let God be true and every man be a liar, so that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. You have the authority to prophesy over your own life with the words of God. In the next and final chapter four, we'll look at authority transferred to men. Don't let anyone convince you to poo-poo this doctrine of your words set out by Proverbs. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. So stand in faith, walk in love, watch out into the deep. Till next time.